Welcome to the Southcrest Live podcast. If this is your first time to listen, please connect with us at www.southcrest.org for more information. Thanks for listening and enjoy today's message. This week on Southcrest Live, featuring Dr. David Wilson, we conclude our study called Hope, a series in 1 Peter. We're in chapter 5 today, verses 10 through 14. In this passage, Peter ends his epistle with some very powerful and encouraging words of counsel for Christians who are persecuted and scattered abroad. Let's open our Bibles to 1 Peter 5 and listen to this week's message, God's Amazing Grace. From Pastor David Wilson. If you have your Bibles, would you open them to 1 Peter chapter 5? This is the season finale. That's about as much response I got in the 8 o'clock service, too. (laughs) This may be the close of this book, but there is some amazing truth here. Something you're going to want to put in your pocket and carry home today, I promise you. Would you stand while I read God's word? Verse 10. But the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus after you have suffered a while will perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. You may have noticed someone who was carried out just a moment ago having some, some physical issues. That is James uh, Robertson, and we're going to pray for him while we pray. Would you join me as we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and pray that you will give us something to take home today, to live out and to remember and to stand on. We do lift up James to you and ask that you would use the folks that are tending to him right now. But most of all, we ask that you reach down and touch his life and help him, Lord. Uh, what, whatever his needs are, we ask that you meet those now. Take care of him and his family. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. A would-be vacationer saw an advertisement at a travel agency for a winter cruise, $100. He immediately went in to sign up. As soon as he paid his $100, someone hit him in the head, dropped him down a chute into a rowboat, pushed him out to sea. A little later, another man came in, the travel agency, paid his $100 for the same cruise. They conked him on the head, dropped him down a chute into a rowboat, pushed him out to sea. About a day later, Drifting under a blistering sun, the two boats came within a few yards of one another. And one of them said to the other, Hey, do they serve meals on this cruise? (laughs) The other one replied, They didn't last year. (laughs) 
sometimes our troubles are from our own stupid mistakes, aren't they? Now, we know that. We're going to give that to each other because we're all human and we're flawed and we all make mistakes. But sometimes the difficulties we have are not because of our own mistakes, but it's because of the warfare that we're in. Last week, we looked at the war and the enemy that we have, the adversary and the trials and testings and troubles that come our way. Sometimes we lose sight of the goal. It was a fog-shrouded morning, July the 4th, 1952, when a young woman named Florence Chadwick waded into the water off of Catalina Island. She intended to swim the channel from the island all the way to the California coast. Long-distance swimming was not new to her because she had been the first woman to swim the English Channel in both directions. The water was numbing cold that day. The fog was so thick, she could hardly see the boats that were traveling with her. She swam more than 15 hours several times. Sharks had to be driven away with a rifle. But after swimming 15 hours, she asked to be taken out of the water. Her trainer was trying to encourage her and saying, look, we could be very close, but all she could see was fog, so she quit. She was less than a mile from the shore. Later, she asked, when she was being interviewed, she said, I'm not excusing myself, but if I could have seen the land, I might have made it. It wasn't the cold or the fear or the exhaustion that caused her to fail. It was the fog. She couldn't see where she was going. She sort of lost focus. And many times we feel that way. And that may have been why Paul wrote in Philippians, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Two months later, Florence Chadwick entered the water again on the same beach. She swam the distance, setting a new speed record because she could see the land. This letter has been written to people who are under persecution, going through very difficult circumstances, who are despondent, discouraged, depressed, whatever you want to call it, and they're probably losing sight of the fact of why am I following Jesus? Because all it's brought me is trouble. Rome was persecuting them. They were probably wondering, is it worth it? And in the closing part of this letter, Peter assures them that it's worth it because of God's amazing grace. In this passage, we've got certain truths that you're going to want to hold on to. Peter thought the return of Jesus was imminent. He, he knew the outcome of that had already been decided that Satan was a defeated foe. But until he comes again, there's some things we need to remember. And that's what I want to share with you quickly. First of all, believers are covered in grace. Years ago, there was a question being discussed at a conference. The question was, what makes Christianity different from all the religions in the world? The discussions got very heated, and none of the delegates could agree on the answer. C.S. Lewis got there late, who was a strong defender of Christianity. He came in late to the discussion. He sat down, and he said, what's all the rumpus about? And when he learned that the debate was about the uniqueness of Christianity, his immediate comment was, oh, that's easy. It's grace. 
And folks, that's what makes us different from all the religions of the world because we have a God of grace. You were saved by grace. Not anything you did on your own, you didn't earn it. It wasn't the commandments you kept. It wasn't going to church. It wasn't all the moral things that you did. It's you were saved by grace. This passage in verse 10 says, the God of all grace. All grace. What part of all do you not understand? Have you ever said to your kids, what part of no do you not understand? Well, what part of all do you not understand? Because our God is the God of all grace. That doesn't mean he's, that's all he is, is grace. But every grace that falls upon us comes from God. No other place. You were saved by grace. Ephesians 2, 8 says, for by grace are you saved through faith. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. And you can also realize that grace not only saves you, but it is help that God gives you. See, God not only saves you by his grace, by his grace, he keeps you, holds on to you, doesn't let go of you. When you're called upon to stand for the Lord Jesus in difficult times or when it seems that the devil is throwing everything at you that he can or when you feel like you're too weak to go on, God is the God of all grace who supplies what we need. In chapter 4, verse 10, it talks about the manifold grace of God, which means multicolored, multi-shaped manifold. In chapter 1, about verse 6, it talks about the manifold trials that you and I go through, the multicolored, multi-shaped troubles and trials. What you see between Matthew... Uh, Second Peter, First Peter 4 and First Peter 1 is that for every colored trial and trouble and shape of trial and trouble, there's the same color and shape and tr- of God's grace. It's like the little girl watching her mom pour gelatin into the different shaped molds. She said, look, mom, it fits every one of them. God's grace fits every one of them. Sometimes we feel like we're in a situation we can't get out of, sort of like during World War II, Dwight Eisenhower, the general, was asked, he he asked one of his um, reconnaissance team, or he asked his, uh, what would you call him, the uh, intelligence officer, he said, describe the enemy situation that we're in right now. He quickly said, sir, picture a donut. We're the whole. We're surrounded. Sometimes you feel like you're the whole of the donut and you're surrounded by all the trials and tribulations that you have. But God's grace is sufficient. Two things about this grace I want to add to you to this. First of all, God's grace strengthens us. It's strengthening grace. Second Corinthians 12, 9 says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in your weakness. Then Paul said, most gladly I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may may rest upon me. When you just think you can't go on, when you don't have the strength to handle all the trials and troubles that you're going through you, God's grace strengthens you. Sometimes we're overwhelmed. I read of an Easterner who wanted to be a rancher. That's not a good combination. (laughs) But he saved up his money, bought a ranch in Wyoming, and moved out there. A year later, one of his friends flew out to visit him. 
He said, what's the name of your ranch? And his friend said, well, it was really hard for us to come up with a name that we both liked. My wife and I couldn't agree on what to call it, so we settled on this name. The double R, Lazy L, Triple Horseshoe, Bar 7, Lucky Diamond Ranch. His friend was really impressed, and he said, well, where are all your cows? He said, well, we had a lot of cows, but none of them survived the branding. <laughs> Sometimes you don't feel like you're going to survive the branding, but the, the troubles that you're going through, but it says that God gives us strength by his grace. But his grace not only is strengthening, God's grace is also sustaining. 1 Corinthians 15, 10 says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. You see, God's grace gives us strength where strength is needed or courage where courage is needed or wisdom where wisdom is needed. As the writer of Hebrews puts it, listen to this, Hebrews chapter 4, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Now listen to this. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. If you're confused, he's got grace for you. If you're discouraged, he's got grace for you. If you're upset, he's got grace for you. If you're angry, he's got grace for you. If you're guilty, he's got grace for you. If you feel like giving up, he's got grace for you. If you feel like the world's turned against you, he's got grace for you. Whatever kind of grace you need, he's got an unlimited supply. You put that in your pocket and take it home. God's grace is not only strengthening and sustaining, and we're covered in God's grace, but look what verse 10 also says, that we believers are called to glory. Verse 10 says, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus after you have suffered a little while. You ever gotten a call from God? You know, a lot of people believe I have a red phone to God in my office. <laughs> they really do. But God, let me tell you what so-and-so did. No, I don't have a red phone in my office to God, but I have gotten a call from God. So have you. Did you know you, you got a call from God? If, if you've been saved, you've turned from your sin, you repented of your sin, and you committed your life to Jesus, what made you do that? What led you to do that? We call it the effectual call of God. He bids you to come. Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except the Father bid him come. You're invited. The Holy Spirit invites you to be part of God's kingdom. Amen. So you've had a call, the call of salvation. And it says we've been called to glory. Not in ourselves, by Christ Jesus. You've been called off the trash heap called humanity that's been demolished by sin, you've been called to glory. One of these days, you're going to go home to glory. 
You're going, you're going to home. And you know what? We bring glory to Christ, not by our own merit, not by what we do per se, but we are the trophies that, of Jesus that when, when they look around heaven, you're going to see this is a result of the grace of God that was brought through Jesus Christ. Brings glory to him. By Christ Jesus, with a view to eternal glory. You were called to, unto, with a view toward eternal glory. God rescued you from the humanity that's sinful. He's going to take you to glory. Amen. But then I hate this part. After you have suffered a little while. Don't you hate that part? He could have left that out. In fact, all, the, all those guys, those health and wealth guys, they tear that part out of there because there's no suffering according to them. You just have enough faith and you don't ever get sick and you don't die and you don't have any problems. You, but, but Peter had to throw that in there after you suffered a little while. And then Paul, you know, he, he throws it in there too in 2 Corinthians 4, 17. says, for our light affliction. I hate that word. When you're afflicted, does it feel light? You know, you come in, you're groaning. What's wrong with you? Well, I got a case of light affliction. It doesn't feel that way, does it? It's heavy. It's hard. We don't like it. And then he pulls in there. He says, but our light affliction is but for a moment. Yeah, right. Been going on several years. But it's working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Then chapter 5 talks about to be absent from the body, these earthly tents, to be present with the Lord. When we get to heaven one day, we're going to look back and go, what was I complaining about? That didn't really last very long. But when you're in the middle of it, it seems like forever. And Peter is encouraging people who are lost a lot of things and who are discouraged and who, who are despondent. And he's saying, listen, you have been called. You're covered in grace. The God of all grace has called you from the dung heap called humanity to glory. After you've suffered a little while, you're going to glory. Hang in there. It's going to get better. Amen. There's a song that said it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. So we're covered in grace. We're called to glory. We know we're going to glory. But then it also says we're completed by God. Look at verse 11. I'm reading out of the New King James Version. It says, but may the Lord, but may the God of all grace. Verse 10, may the God of all grace. Now, I believe that's a, that's not the, the best translation because there's an older manuscript than the Textus Receptus that leaves out the word may and takes it out of the optative mood and puts it in the indicative mood, which basically makes a statement instead of may the God of grace do this. No, the God of all grace will perfect and strengthen and establish you. So it's more of a promise than it is a hopeful prayer it says, they, because the, that, the older manuscripts don't skip the word altos, which means himself, and I'm not being critical of the translation. I'm just saying that sometimes in the English it gets difficult, 
And there are older manuscripts than this particular case. But here's what I want you to see. I want you to see what God does. It says, first of all, he restores us. We are restored. God will perfect you. <laughs> it means to, to fix to fit together, to adjust, to, to mend, to equip. It's the same word used in Matthew 4, 21 that states they use mending the nets. It's also a medical term that was used for setting a fractured bone. It means to supply what is missing or to mend that which is broken. Here's what God does. God restores in us what sin has taken away. God restores in us what sin has broken. God picks us up and begins to make us usable vessels. He forgives us, obviously, but then he begins to restore the broken humanity to be what we need to be to serve him. You're not a lost cause it speaks of that which is well-fitting, almost like a glove fits on a hand. It, God's got a plan for you that is well-fitting for you. Not all of us have the same glove. But we've all got the same plan that God has for us. It says he will restore you. So no matter where you've been, we'd all like to go back and undo some things, wouldn't we? We're all broken, we're all sinful, we're all fallen, but God's restoring you. He saved you by his grace. Now he's making you into the image of his son. Aren't you glad he's not done with you? He's still working on you. Next, we are reestablished. You see the word establish in verse 10. It means to make solid as granite, to fix firmly, to not waver. Luke used this word in describing Jesus, set his face toward Jerusalem. He, it means that the difficult times in our lives transform us into steady, solid people. I didn't learn anything in the fun times. Have you? I mean, let's face it, we enjoy fun times, but you don't really learn anything. You learn things when you're going through difficult times and times of testing and trial. And what does God do? He makes you solid. 1 Thessalonians 3.13, Paul talks about establishing our hearts. We're not driven by emotion. In 2 Thessalonians 2.17, we're established in the work. He gives us direction and focus. 2 Peter 1.12 says we're established in the truth. He makes us strong, solid, unwavering. We're not driven by our emotions. No matter how down we get, we still know the truth. The next word is similar to it. I use the word reinforce. It said he will strengthen you to give vigor, to make firm, to fill with strength. In other words, he's going to build your spiritual muscles. Do you got any spiritual muscles? There's a lot of flabby spiritual Christians. And I don't mean that literally physically. I'm talking about spiritually. But I want to tell you, suffering Christians are never flabby spiritually. 
because they're solid. Exercise, we exercise to make us stronger and try to burn off the fat. The strong trees are the ones that are exposed to the storms. It says he makes us firm, that God will strengthen that which is weak. When you just don't feel like you can go, he comes through. He gives you what you need. He reinforces us, picks us up. As believers, we're also rooted, it says in verse 10, to establish, strengthen, and settle you. It means to lay the foundation, to plant your roots deep, to cause you not to be moved in Christ. No matter what happens to you, no matter how difficult it gets, no matter what tragedy comes your way, you are not moved from your trust in Christ. Yeah, you can be angry with God and you can be disappointed and you can grieve, but you still stay with Jesus. Some of these people were probably wondering, do I need to quit on all of this? Do I need to give up? That song we used to sing, the solid rock on Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. God himself will set you on a foundation. I love what the living Bible says here in verse 10. This particular verse, he says, he will personally come and pick you up and set you firmly in place and make you stronger than ever. That's what God's grace does. Sometimes we say, well, how are you doing? Or what are you planning to do this year? Well, by God's grace, I will do this. Well, literally that's true because God's grace not only saves you, God's grace sustains you and keeps you. Now, most people would get up and leave the movie right here. Okay, you go to a movie. When the credits start, what do you do? Most of you leave. Unless somebody's told you, don't leave during the credits. There's a scene at the end. And the movie makers are getting smarter. They're putting scenes at the end. We've gotten smarter. Instead of watching the credits, we ask the people who work at the movie, is there something at the end of these credits? And if they say no, we leave. A lot of people would take verse 12, 13, and 14 and think, well, it's just the credits. I'm going to get up and leave. But there's so much more here than what casually meets the eye. Because we get another bit of truth here. Believers have companions in grace. And there's three groups of believers. I, I call them three groups. They're not listed as groups, but I grouped them myself. But I want you to understand something. There's something really significant here. Verse 12 says, By Silvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. Silvanus. Who is this guy? Well, the group I put him in, unrecognized believers in second place. Silvanus is the same as Silas. You ever heard of Silas? Paul and Silas? Paul and Silas on the second missionary journey. Why didn't Barnabas go on the second missionary journey? He went with Paul on the first one. Why didn't Barnabas go on the second one? Because Paul and Barnabas had a Baptist disagreement over Mark. 
Mark was the nephew of Barnabas, and Mark, on the first missionary journey, quit and went home. And Paul didn't like that. We don't know exactly how it all happened, but we know that on the second missionary journey, Barnabas and Paul got in a disagreement about taking Mark, because Mark quit the first time. Why should I take him the second time? Barnabas wanted to take him, so Barnabas didn't go. Silas went. Same guy, Silvanus, Silas. Silas went with Paul. He was the guy with Paul in the Philippian jail when the earthquake happened. They'd been beaten and thrown into jail, and the earthquake happened, and the jail doors opened, and the Philippian jailer was going to kill himself, and Paul and Silas were singing and saying, don't leave, and they led him to Christ. Same guy, same Silas. So you've got Silas who was traveling with Paul, and now Peter calls him our faithful brother. And actually, Peter probably dictated this letter to Silas. He says it. I wrote to you, I've written to you briefly by Silvanus, our faithful brother. Now, what does that mean? Well, Silas was a Gentile knew Greek really well. That's why some of the Greek in First Peter is well-written Greek. Can you imagine an old fisherman writing well? Probably not. Not like Silas wrote, penned it. And I know all this is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but you have a man who's now writing for Peter and now who's with Peter. So what does all that mean? Silas is one of those guys in the church you can never do without because he was content to take second place and to serve almost in the background as long as God's work was being done. Paul outshined him or overshadowed him, I should say. And here he gets one little word in the end of the letter. So he goes down in history as a faithful servant on whom Peter and Paul depended. I'm so thankful for the believers who don't mind being in second place. They don't get recognized, yet they faithfully serve. They serve taking care of our children so well. They serve greeting at doors. They serve ministering to people in various ways, visiting in the hospitals. They serve. There's so many ways to serve and so many people people that are not recognized. But I'm so thankful for them, aren't you? They're believers in grace. They're just unrecognized. And then there's another group I call the unnamed believers, standing firm. She who is in Babylon, who is that woman? She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you. The she is a church. Why does he use the word Babylon? It's a code word that stands for everything that's against God. The the place of exile and wickedness, the epitome of that which is opposed to God, probably use that instead of putting Rome because Rome is persecuting the Christians. And if they know there's a church in Rome, they'll start looking for it. So use the code word. But what I want you to understand is that there were churches in Asia Minor that were standing firm in the gospel, even in the epitome of opposition toward God. 
We have churches around the world today, even in our own community, that are serving the Lord, and we're thankful for them because they're unnamed here. But they're standing firm in the faith. Maybe nobody knows your name. I hope that's not the case. If nobody knows your name, you need to get in a Sunday school class, the life group. But then I don't want to close without mentioning the third group that I call the unpredictable believers given a second chance because this Mark is John Mark who quit on the first missionary journey that I told to Barnabas' nephew. Now get this. This is the same Mark who wrote the gospel of Mark. But Mark didn't walk around with Jesus. How could he write the gospel of Mark? Who told him about all of that? Peter. He calls him my son. He's not a physical son, and I don't even think he was a son in the faith. Peter didn't lead Mark to Christ, but he calls him a son because of his faithful service. And I believe that Peter told Mark about all of the stuff that Jesus did, and Mark wrote it in the gospel. But here, what I want you to see is a guy who pretty much blew it on the first missionary journey because I don't know if it was a persecution or fear or whatever. He quit. But God still used him. You ever quit? You ever blown it? You ever just messed up? Maybe you were doing something for the Lord and you just messed up. But the great news is God's the God of another chance. He he doesn't write you off. You're not too bad to be used by the Lord. You're not too far gone. You're not too damaged because he restores you and strengthens you by his grace and and uses you in ways you never dreamed possible. Now, we don't greet one another with a kiss of love. That was a customary greeting. Shaking hands is good enough. Our custom is shaking hands. In some parts of Europe or Middle East or Asia, there are the ways that people greet one another. But he says, peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Because you'll never have peace in your life until you're in Christ Jesus. I think all of us fit in one of those categories. We're still all covered by grace. And today, if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, you can respond to the grace of God. Do you understand what God is offering you? He says, turn from your sin. I'll forgive you. Turn from your sin. I'll save you. Turn from your sin in repentance. Believe in Jesus Christ by faith. I'll call you. I'm calling you now out of sinful humanity into glory. You can be saved today. You don't have to join Southcrest, but you can be saved today. Would you pray with me? Thank you, Pastor David, for a compelling bookend to our first Peter study. Here in chapter 5, Peter concludes his letter with some poignant reminders to Christians about how they are covered in grace, 
called to glory, completed by God, and how they are not alone but have companions in grace. Some are unrecognized or unnamed, and some come as a surprise, but struggling Christians needn't walk the life of faith alone. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. Be sure to catch our next installment of the Southcrest Live podcast. Thank you for listening to today's message. If you would like more information, to make a commitment, or to request prayer, please text the word podcast to 555-888. You can also connect with us on our Southcrest app or our website for complete worship services or to plan to visit us in person. Thanks again for listening.